Hi, I'm Sarah Schweig at the Center for Court Innovation, and today I'm speaking with Gail Pendleton about how issues around domestic violence become far more complicated when they involve victims with pending immigration status. Gail Pendleton is co-director of ASSISTA, a national immigration law technical assistance project supported by the Federal Office on Violence Against Women. Thank you for speaking with me today, and welcome. Thank you. Women who are victims of domestic violence already face a number of hurdles, and women who aren't citizens uh, often face a much more complex situation. Can you give a sense of these challenges and, you know, for instance, how does immigration status factor into the sort of abusive patterns that they're experiencing? Well, the first thing to think about is how is this similar to what you might see with citizen survivors? So, for instance, um, you know, language might be an issue for deaf women, for instance, right? Language access and understanding what they're saying and who whose information are you taking as truth if you're not getting it directly from their their mouth. Um, culture also could be an, an issue. Is, is the pastor or the religious leader telling people they should stay married? That could be true for immigrants, it could be true for citizens. Um, economics, also an issue for citizens, but when you're talking about someone who may not be able to work legally or is working illegally, that adds an extra tool of power and control in the hands of particularly a documented spouse or intimate partner. Uh, and in our immigration family system prior to the Violence Against Women Act, uh, the U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident spouse controls the immigration process. And so that's why in, in the Violence Against Women Act, Congress created a special route to status for uh, victims of domestic violence by citizens and lawful permanent residents. So that control of the immigration status is, is the one weapon that, you know, wouldn't happen to a U.S. citizen. And the other thing that I think is probably true for a lot of citizen survivors, but especially true for many non-citizens, is who's their source of information. Because the isolation may be even more intense for non-citizen survivors than it is for citizens, their source of information is going to be their perpetrator. And what are they telling them? They're telling them, you, our court system won't help you because you're undocumented or semi-documented. I'll get custody of the kids. You'll get deported. You'll get turned over to ICE if you call the police. All of those are very effective tools for mm-hmm. abusers to keep their both their spouses and their kids in violent homes. Right. And ICE, just for our listeners. Oh, right. Is, um, and, immigration and Customs Enforcement. Okay. Right. A victim of domestic violence, a domestic violence offender, and any children involved may have all varying immigration status. Is that right? right? Um, how does that further complicate the situation? And how do you sort of deal with those differences in the court system? Well, the crucial role that, that we've tried to work on is ensuring that there are routes to status that allow um, victims of domestic violence to pursue immigration status without the control of their abusers. And so most of the system, unless you're the what we call the principal beneficiary of an immigration benefit, which is usually going to be the abuser, frankly, if like, mm-hmm. say, engineers who come in on high-tech visas or whatever, right. their family members are here legally, but if they leave them, then right. they get deported. Right. So you can't, um, and in the family-based system, as I mentioned, the abuser controls, the, for the most part, um, controls the process. So 
that was the initial attempt was it doesn't matter so much whether what status they have it matters who controls getting a permanent status and the the m safest permanent status short of citizenship is a green card what people call lawful permanent residence um, and that actually takes a long time even if you do self-petitioning or the U visa which is the other thing I wanted to mention um, because the self-petitioning just parallels regular family-based process but those of you who work in court systems will know that oftentimes the abuser also lacks a secure immigration status or it doesn't fit our normal family-based, like same-sex marriages. For instance, immigration law does not recognize same-sex marriages because DOMA trumps like Massachusetts state law where I'm from. Um, so uh, Orrin Hatch, as I mentioned in the training just now, suggested the U visa as a tool to get undocumented communities, people who are too afraid, victims who are too afraid to call law enforcement, give a tool for law enforcement to reach out to those folks and a form of humanitarian relief for them. They do have to be helpful to law enforcement mm -hmm. and they have to have a certification from law enforcement. So if the hurdles are higher in terms of proof for getting that status, yeah. but, but it helps a lot of people who really wouldn't be able to be helped in our regular system. Yeah, you mentioned you've done a, a lot of reform work with immigration issues and policy right. uh, change. And I know policies are often shifting mm -hmm. um, and making headway right. in this issue. Can you describe some of the recent legislation Congress has passed and what hurdles have been cleared and then what else needs to be accomplished? Well, one of the things I tell the impatient lawyers and advocates is that getting the law passed is in some ways the easy part and then you spend a decade getting it implemented the right way and we've been fortunate in the violence against women area to have basically a series of incremental improvements in access to status for immigrant survivors of domestic violence uh, and sexual assault and human trafficking um, so you had the 94 violence against Wom women act then 2000 the victims of trafficking act 2005 again but we're still working I, I also serve as a liaison with citizenship and immigration services on how to implement these laws since 1997 and so it takes a long time you know it's the government right <laughs> it's, a, it's the federal government and there are a lot of stakeholders besides us who are involved so right. we're still working on getting some parts of for instance the U visa implemented even though it was passed in 2000 right. So a lot of what I do is work with the advocates and lawyers and with CIS trying to create that fruitful communication as opposed to an adversarial relationship. Right. And, and if I could just say we also recently in the past year have developed the same kind of relationship with um, ICE headquarters, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and the Department of Homeland Security's Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, so that we're trying to find common ground and sh you know, shared agendas. We don't obviously right. all share all of the same agenda, but we do share some goals. So. And at least share the information to, right. you know, help enact. Right. And, and, and I help inform them about what we're <laughs> seeing in the field. Um, so, for instance, in the past year, I, I can't take credit for this, but ICE did implement some prosecutorial discretion memos, and one is designed specifically for victims of crimes. And the idea is, you know, they have priorities, or you know, people with criminal convictions, terrorists, you know, there are other priorities they have for removal, so if someone is a victim of a crime and is being helpful to law enforcement, it's not a high priority for them to remove them, and they should allow them to stay here and pursue right. status. So that just happened. So again, wow. my message to the field is this is going to take another decade to actually make it work, but we're here to, we at the national level are here to help you try to work that out right. in a non, as non-adversarial way as possible. As with any issue with sort of ever-changing policies, keeping courts and advocates up to date seems incredibly crucial. Mm -hmm. How do you ensure that jurisdictions are kept informed and all those stakeholders are 
you know, trained? How does how does that work? Well, there, there are two ways that we try to do it. One is that we work with organizations such as the Center for Corn Innovation and the National Judicial Institute that are sponsored by Office on Violence Against Women who have special training for court mm-hmm. systems. And that's kind of the trickle down. And then because we've been doing this since before 1993, um, we have a large field of thousands of people who are out there, actually out there doing this, right? And so the idea is give them the ability to go out and do this locally, because there's only so much you can do. You have to have the bottom pushing from the bottom and us pushing from the top. And so, and it's never going to be perfect, but hopefully you can make more systems better. I would say a thing to do in the next few years is pick a few models that seem to be working. You know, there's no one model that works everywhere. So like Mm -hmm. what works in Suffolk County, New York is not going to work in Northwest Arkansas, right? You know, you got to take the principles that seem to be the most important principles and figure out how people can apply them to the resources they have locally. And so for those jurisdictions that maybe haven't gotten, you know, the training and Mm -hmm. what can a court do to help advocates and attorneys work with immigrant survivors of domestic violence? And, you know, what are the key things that you think they need to be aware of? Well, I'd say the message for judges is judicial leadership. That's the key thing is that they need to go back to their systems because there's only so much a judge can do by the time it gets to them, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be the advocates in the system. It's got to be the police and the DAs and the domestic violence people out there who are really the first point of entry for these folks so that they even get to the judge, right? right? So that often what the judges will say, the main thing they realize is they got to take this back and and encourage bar association trainings and at the stakeholder meetings raising these issues and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And then the other piece is to get all those other players in the system trained up. There are trainings out there. We do trainings at the National District Attorneys Association, at the FJC conferences, at the Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Conferences for Advocates. So, and there's lots of materials out there. That's the other message is Mm -hmm. you don't need to start from scratch. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people have been doing this around the country in lots of different contexts. So we can, because we have this huge network, we can also find people who can talk to you. Like I'm a big fan of peer training. So if if the message is better coming from an advocate for advocates or a police chief for other police chiefs, we can work on that. That's great. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I'm Sarah Schweig, and I've been speaking with Gail Pendleton, co-director of ASSISTA, about domestic violence and its bearing on immigration policy. To learn more about the Center for Court Innovation, please visit www.courtinnovation.org. Thank you for listening.